Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Please read with me the verses in bold. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Brad, and uh, I am also a pastor here at Grace. I'm not sure. I, maybe we're all competing with Mark, but I'll clarify as well. I'm not Mark <laughs> or Daniel. My name is Brad, and uh, we're here on what sometimes is called the second Sunday of Easter in, in kind of the historic practice of the church, we're in the season of Easter, or Eastertide is what it's sometimes called, and that is uh, the, the seven weeks between Easter and Pentecost, uh, the, that time in which Jesus was risen and he was with his disciples and others who were witnessing his uh, resurrection and trying to wrestle with what this meant for them and for the world as we know it. And so that's what we're going to continue to do this morning. So if you want to call this Easter part two, that's okay with me. Um, but uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which is really, we just took a little piece of it, but it's really um, a classic passage about the significance of the resurrection. Um, as I was, I was, I was reading Paul's words, it reminded me of the following conversation, and uh, this conversation is one that I've actually had several times over the years. My profession is uh, as a minister, and so I get to do weddings, and then I'll have these uh, follow-up conversations with couples. And so uh, over the years, I've had some version of this conversation in a reoccurring way, I've had it with several people uh, who are in the tent or online right now, but it goes something like this. I haven't seen this uh, young couple for a while, and they either come up to me or contact me and say uh, that they like to catch up. They're fairly newly married, and so I'm excited to connect with them and catch up on their lives. And so we begin to talk, and I start uh, to try to figure out what's going on with them, and I ask what I think are all of the important questions. I want to know what's happening for you. So I, I ask questions and I learn that either he or she has started a new career that's going to help provide for their family. And I learn that either he or she 
has uh, found a new job that fits their gifts better than the old job, and they like going to work now, and they're really enjoying themselves. I find out maybe that they're moving into their first apartment or getting ready to uh, sign a mortgage and begin to be homeowners for the first time. I ask uh, other questions and find out that uh, their parents are doing well. We talk about several of their hobbies and the things that they're passing their time with. We probably even mention how good or bad the weather has been. And then just before I'm about to sign off and say, wow, it's been so great uh, to catch up with you, somebody says, oh yeah, one more thing. We're pregnant. We're going to have a baby. And I say, what? Talk about burying the lead, right? Like, this is why you, we were supposed to get together. This is why you were contacting me. A am I wrong? Um, apparently, this is the reason for the conversation that we're having in the first place. The reason that you wanted to catch up and they, uh, in one sense or another, this is, this is uh, the core reason why they're doing all of those other things, right? We're establishing a home and trying to find a career and caring for one another because we feel like we've been called to start a family. And so one thing in the center really is the reason you might say uh, the thing of first importance or certainly more important than all of these other important things. It's not dissimilar, I don't think, sometimes to another reoccurring conversation that I've had, that I hear, maybe you've had this conversation in as well, and it revolves around this question. Why are we here? And when I say that, I mean on the worship stream or gathered here in this tent. Why? Uh, what is the purpose? What is the message of the church? Uh, probably a way to ask that question and use biblical language, the language from the Bible, would be to say, what is the gospel? The translation for, uh, for the gospel of the... The, the Greek word is euangelion, uh, uh, good news. And so the question is, what is the good news? What is such good news that people uh, gather in tents because they can't gather inside to talk about it? What, what, is the, what's, what news is so good that people are willing to uh, log on to what uh, initially certainly was a mediocre live stream. I think it's gotten a lot better. Um, we got a great team, but why do people gather? What is this? What is this good news? And if you ask people, what's the gospel? What does that word mean? Even people who read the Bible, what, you ask them, what is the gospel? You'll find that you get all sorts of answers, that the answers and the explanations uh, vary widely. Some answers uh, may, will just be plain not what the Bible says. You may ask somebody about the gospel and you'll hear a story about how God promises favor poured out on people with uh, financial blessing. Or you may hear uh, about some kind of vision for establishing a new civilization or society with Jesus' name written on it. But some answers, uh, you know, some answers will be vague, a vague kind of description of God's love. And others will be very specific, uh, uh, an explanation about pursuing personal holiness through a very explicit set of moral or biblical codes. When you ask what is the gospel, some 
Answers will emphasize social justice. Others will talk uh, particularly about religious freedom. Some will elevate the importance of family and the value of human life. And most of these are biblical themes. Most of these are uh, important implications of the gospel. They're things that we need to take the gospel and apply it to in our lives. But these things, according to the scriptures, are not the gospel. None of them is what Paul calls the gospel in 1 Corinthians. In fact, many of these good things can cause confusion if we build our identity either as individuals or as a church around them. If our primary identity is around uh, something that is not quite the center of uh, the Christian message. They can cause confusion and uh, even leave people with the impression, uh, either because they've been in our midst or because they have been observing our lives, that uh, getting, getting it right in one of those categories is what it means to be a Christian. What it, they, they, that essentially following Jesus means something to do with one of those categories. And so it seems like a critical question as church and as believers to know what the Scripture says the gospel is so that when we speak and when we interact and when we encounter difficult issues and encounter one another and try to respond in a way that followers of Christ should, uh, that we aren't confused about what the, what the good news is, what, the, what really actually saves us and what salvation looks like according to the Scripture. And that was Paul's sentiment. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a significant portion of the New Testament, wrote 1 Corinthians. He, it was, uh, there was a city called Corinth where he had planted a church and then moved on in his missionary journeys. And he uh, wrote this letter back to the church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth was being tempted to try to establish its identity around a lot of things that weren't quite the core of the gospel. If you read that book, 1 Corinthians, you'll find that there was struggle around whether or not they should find their primary identity and who they followed, which leader uh, was their leader, who they voted for. There was struggle, feeling pressure to, find, to define themselves as a people around what position they took regarding sexual freedom. They were uh, struggling as a church to uh, whether or not to divide amongst themselves about the right way to conduct worship. What happens when we come together and what do we do and what don't we do and who goes first and who doesn't. And uh, Paul doesn't diminish any of these things. He doesn't suggest that they're not important. But uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he actually gives instructions about how to take the gospel and find the implications that it has for these important questions. But he gets, he's clear that getting those things right, you know, figuring out leadership or figuring out uh, sexual freedom or figuring out worship and missing the good news, misses the point. Getting those things right and, and not understanding the gospel is an exercise in missing the point. And so Paul says, essentially, here in our passage that we read today, he says, I didn't bury the lead when I came to you. 
I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. And then he goes on to remind them very succinctly of what that good news is. Now, I want to try something. I'm going to say or sing the first line of something, and then you just respond to it because you're going to know what the next line is. Okay, ready? A, B, C, D. Very good. We'll do another one. Ready? I pledge allegiance to the flag. Very good. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Feels weird to not continue on those, right? We have these memorable uh, sing songs or almost poetic ways, uh, catchy phrases to remember things that have been deemed important to us, either by our educators or by our country or by our churches. Pledges and creeds that help us remember uh, these, these core truths, and the next three things that Paul says, historians believe were something like that, that they were probably uh, one of the very first Christian creeds or confessions that people knew. And so when Paul goes on to tell them uh, the, the following, he's actually uh, beginning a phrase that people probably would have jumped right in with and finished with him. He says, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that one, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Two, that he was buried. And three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And probably people were talking along with him as he said the rest. And appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to more more than five hundred. And so let's just look at those three things this morning and talk about what the gospel is. First, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the central theme of the creed. In fact, the other parts of that, this memorable little tune that people were humming along with uh, support this belief that uh, The idea that Christ died for our sin or the idea of atonement. Now, we don't have a lot of use for that word in our culture. We don't throw that word around very much, atonement. But uh, we almost have an instinctive understanding of what it is, uh, even if we don't have words to describe it or use them very often. In 2001, uh, now famous book written by an atheist author named Ewan uh, McCowan was released. It's later made into a movie, and the title of the book and the movie is Atonement. It's a story, um, it's a wartime love story that chronicles the consequences of a crime over the course of six decades. And a little girl's heart-wrenching attempt to undo or to pay back the great harm that she had done to those whom she loved. Uh, The whole story, in in one way or another, is her desire to atone for the wrong that she had done. And her desire to atone defines her life. It shapes the whole story across six decades. And uh, in fact, in 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 the story, many of the most hopeful scenes are actually, uh, they actually tragically turn out to be figments of her 
imagination, wishful thinking and wishful attempts to undo what was already done and couldn't be undone. Even Ewan McCowan understands that there are consequences, that there are debts that we owe because of the things that we have done. The scripture calls it sin, and it makes it clear that we're all guilty, that, we've, that we have uh, received an inheritance that is rebellion against God, and that we have ourselves broken with God and His design, and that uh, the guilt that we feel is appropriate, that we owe God the lives which He gave us and which we have abused and which we've used in rebellion against Him and in hurtful ways against other people. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins. Uh, in the sense that on the cross, Jesus atoned for the crimes that we have committed against God, our King. That Jesus, dying as our substitute, absorbed into himself the consequences and the punishment of God against the real moral guilt that is ours, his people. Jesus, the scripture says in so many ways, left, that, left no debt unpaid for those who accept him. He paid it with his life and announced as he did it, as he died on the cross, it is finished. Paul says that, uh, Paul, Paul wants to make clear, uh, it seems like uh, he was sometimes accused of then as he is now of being sort of the, the architect, that Paul looked back on an event, Jesus' death, and created a story about atonement. And Paul says, I didn't make this up. This isn't my construction. It's according to the scriptures. He says, you can find it all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says, surely he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And it, by his wounds we are healed. And so Paul says, the thing that I said, the, the, the lead that I didn't bury, the first thing that I want to make clear is the good news is that Christ died for our sin. The second part of the song says, and he was buried. Now, this is the, probably the littlest part of the creed, the song, and it's really just a proof statement. He was buried. What it's saying is that he was really, really dead. This was not a fainting spell or a swoon or a near-death experience that ended in some kind of resuscitation and a story about flatlining in the ER. He was really Really, my notes have it in capital letters, really dead. They buried him. Jesus' suffering and his physical death were utterly real. They were extreme. They were final. No one in the biblical testimony protests that Jesus was dead. The issue is whether or not he was undead, whether or not he was resurrected. No one protested that he actually died. In fact, the account makes clear that the greatest practitioners of death of the day, the Roman centurions, made public display of proof of death by mutilating his body, by sealing it in a tomb, and by setting a guard to make sure that the body didn't go anywhere. And so it's important in that early creed that we realize that he was really, really dead. And here's why. 
the third part of the song says, and he was raised on the third day, accordance with the scripture, and that he appeared. The third part of the creed says that three days later, uh, something happened and that, that that something was not only a fulfillment of what the scriptures had said, like uh, the, the book of Isaiah and the book of Hosea and the other prophets who said on the third day he would rise again, and that it's not only a fulfillment of Jesus' own words who said the Son of Man will suffer and die and on the third day rise again, but it's also a striking claim about medically what happened, right? He was in fact dead. The corpse was in the tomb three days and then resurrected. Again, this is not a resuscitation. And here's why that's so important. It's so important because Jesus' real death and physical resurrection are the tangible evidence that sin, our sin, is atoned for. That our debt with God has been paid. The scripture says in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. If you sin, if you were born into a sinful world, if you have sin in your life, then the wage, what, the payment for that is death. That's what you owe. And if Jesus has truly died and returned to life, then it must be that he paid that debt in full and had some left over to share. N.T. Wright writes, Without the resurrection, there's no reason to suppose that Jesus' crucifixion dealt with our sins or sin. But with the resurrection, the divine victory over sin and hence over death is assured. There's a connection. This is, as the Gospel of John would say, the ultimate sign. This is the proof in the pudding that what he claims about what his death did is true. The resurrection is the testimony that the atonement is real. The resurrection is the guarantee that death is actually defeated. The resurrection is the affirmation that Jesus was not a martyr. He was Messiah. He was the Savior. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. It's not a wishful thinking. And that's the last part of the little song. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again, and unlike the little girl in the atonement, this is not wishful thinking. This is not an imagined solution to a real problem. But the creed makes clear that Jesus, when he was raised, was encountered. That people with real lives in the real world on a real day and time came across Jesus, resurrected from the grave. Jesus really rose from the dead and how do we know he rose? He was seen by Peter. This letter that Paul writes is a letter that he wrote while Peter was still around. Paul knows Peter. They didn't always agree about stuff, but they agreed about this. It says that he appeared to the disciples and to 500 other people. This is several decades after the event. Literally, Paul is saying, there are people you can go ask, like 500 of them. Go check it out. People are still around when I'm writing this letter. And says, ultimately, Jesus appeared to me. The book of Acts tells the story of Paul's drastic, dramatic conversion when he encountered Jesus in the flesh on the road to Damascus. This is not a 
wishful thinking or imagined solution to a real problem. We know sin and guilt is real. We know the consequences for our decisions because we see it played out in our lives and in our relationships. And the atonement, the scripture says, is good news and we can know that it's real because the resurrection is real as well. Three implications of a real resurrection for your real life. Number one, if the resurrection is real, and it is, and this is what the rest of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is about, so you can go and read more, but if the resurrection is real, and it is, then the way to freedom from guilt, the way to uh, relief from shame, uh, the, the, way to, um, the way to release is not what we think. Our instinct is uh, that to be free of guilt or shame, we need to uh, justify our actions. We need to uh, reinterpret the events and uh, justify what we did. We need to explain away or find blame someplace else besides ourselves. But the gospel says that if the resurrection is real, and it is, then the way to freedom from guilt and shame is actually confession and repentance. To, to agree, yes, in fact, I am a sinner, and the only way that I will find freedom is if someone atones for this sin. And the promise is that it's been done. The resurrection says that it's true. That is the way, as the scripture says, to salvation. And this is the good news. Believe that Christ died for your sins and be set free. Number two, uh, implication of a real resurrection for your real life. If the, re if the resurrection is real, and it is, and you put your faith in Christ, then whatever suffering you are going through, whatever, whatever difficulty or challenge you find in this, uh, in this season in your life or the next, Whatever comes upon you, it will not ultimately destroy you. What kind of hope is that? Jesus has redefined suffering and filled it with purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things work for the good. It, that even in the language of the New Testament, up until this point and applying to Jesus, it says that he died and he was buried. If you notice after that, when it talks about the passing of believers, it uses this, it talks about sleeping. It says when believers sleep because suddenly this is not ultimate. Suddenly this is not the end. Suddenly this is the doorway to hope. And so if the resurrection is real, then suffering has purpose. And we can struggle uh, with meaning and hope. Finally, if the resurrection is real, and it is, then we have important work to do because uh, we need to be a people that are not about finding the right answers, but, ra but rather figuring out how our struggles relate to the gospel, how this good news has implications in our lives and in our gatherings, in who we follow, in how we interact with the, the cultural moment, in our uh, interaction with uh, sexual ethics and the other events of the day. But uh, by struggling to connect what we come upon in our lives with this root good news that there is atonement, that Christ has died for our sins, we get to see those opportunities 
those challenges as opportunities not to get it right, not to divide between the right and the wrong or the righteous and the unrighteous, but rather uh, not, not as an opportunity to win arguments, but rather as opportunities to share good news, opportunities to say, the gospel is real and this is what it means in my life. We, we, we have to refuse to bury the lead and get bogged down in debate that doesn't lead us back to the cross. We have to find how everything is related to this good news and return to it again and again. Our need for Christ's atoning work in our life has the power to unite us because it is more significant than any of these other things. It is on a deeper level, the book of Ephesians says, in Christ's broken body, he broke down the dividing walls between us. And so the atonement, our, the atonement and the good news is more important than the events of the day. It's, those things are not unimportant. It's more important than our position on social issues. Those things are important. It's more important than our uh, preferences or our proclivities or uh, our, our choice of a certain kind of church or a certain kind of worship. It is the good news that we gather around. The gospel is the reason why we are here and why we care at all about all of that other stuff.